David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. So step back. That key decision, everything else that we're going to look at today falls out of that one decision. David chose to go to Gath. So David, here's just a map. So David stays in that little yellow box. It's just the wilderness of around Ziph. Saul goes back to the purple star. That's where he lives in Gibeah. And David decides, I'm not safe in Judah any longer. This is Saul's territory. He can attack me whenever he wants. He's not trustworthy and he's not. He's going to pursue me again. He most likely will. It would be safer for me if I see which is a foreign country. And he settles in Gath, that green city he's, or that green star. He's been there before. If you look back in chapter 21, the first time David fled from Saul, he goes to Gath. He goes just him and maybe two or three other guys. Gath is the city where Goliath was from. Remember, David had killed him. And he has Goliath's sword in his hand. And he thinks he's going to slip in and be anonymous. And he goes in and people start saying about him, isn't this the one they sing about? Saul is slain as thousands and David is tens of thousands. And David gets nervous because he realizes they're going to see me as a threat. And so he acts insane. Literally, he acts like he's crazy in order to get kicked out of the city. That was his goal, was to get kicked out of the city. And now he comes back. And he comes back with 600 men. And now we see for the first time he doesn't just have 600 men with him. Those men have families. So you're thinking 1,800, 2,000, maybe more people. We've talked about David's situation. They've been living for five, seven, nine, ten years in the wilderness. And David is taking care of this whole group of people. And it's one thing to think I'm taking care of 600 men. Now I'm taking care of their wives and their kids as well. Think about that. I talked to a, a mom this morning and she came in and somebody asked where her husband was. And she said he and a couple of guys went father-son camping. I, I, don't, I don't know why anybody does that. The reason we invented things like houses and electricity was because we didn't want to live outside anymore. But people, some people choose to do that. Think about that for a month and for a year and for two years and for three years and for seven years and for ten years. Not easy. And that's where David has been. He's like, this is, I'm done. And so he goes to Gath where he feels like he's going to be safe and he's received. He and these 2,000 or so people are received by the king and the And Saul hears he's got a great network uh, of informants, and they say David's in Gath, and it works. Saul decides not to pursue David any longer. He knows he can't reach him there in Philistia. Verse 5, Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it's belonged to the king of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Now, David and his men went up and raided the Gershites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, those people had lived in the land extending to Shur in Egypt. Whatever, excuse me, whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or a woman alive, but he took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish said, where did you go to raiding today? David would say against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he's become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. 
So here's another map. So David is living in this city. Remember, these are walled cities, and he's just brought 2,000 refugees into the city. Probably not great for the people in the city and definitely not great for David because he's, uh, Achish can keep an eye on him. And so he says, I'm not worthy to live in your city. Can you send me somewhere? And he goes to Ziklag, 25 miles away down there in the bottom left corner. And he's out from under the watchful eye of this king. And his people have a little space that they can spread out. And for 16 months, they raid. I don't know if they, they went every week or every month or every few months. We don't know. But they would raid these different areas. And the people who they raided were, were tribes that were enemies of God. So this can be a tough one for us. David is raiding towns. So it's unprovoked. He's instigating these attacks and he's wiping out all the people. All of these people were under the judgment of God. You can look all the way back in Deuteronomy. Everything David's doing now, you can place in, in a category of obedience. Uh, there's up there on the screen, you can see some bullet points. The places where David's going and the people who he's attacking were places that God had given to the Israelites that they'd been unable to maintain. They couldn't hold them. And the people they are attacking are people who God said, you need to wipe them out. Because if you don't, they're going to lead you astray. And you can look all the way back in Deuteronomy and see that Ziklag was a city that was given to the Israelites that they weren't able to maintain. The Gershites were people who they were told to wipe out. The Amalekites, we don't know anything about the Gershites, but they were living in this land. And everyone living in that land fell under this ban. And that, again, that can be a hard one for us to, to swallow. We don't recognize the God of Joshua sometimes and say, who is that? For me, I just say, God's more just and more merciful than I ever am. And he's always perfectly just and merciful. And so he, what, what he, somehow he did right by those people. I don't know how that looks when they're being slaughtered, but somehow it's a just and merciful decision because that's the kind of God that he is. And so that's what David does, but he lies about it. He lies to the king. He's raiding Canaanite people, and he says, I'm raiding Israelite areas. I'm attacking Israelite cities. I'm attacking Israelite areas. And, and he's bringing Achish some of the plunder. David's keeping all of the stuff. That's how they're living. We've said before, how, how, are, they make, how are they putting food on the table when they can't farm and they can't raise animals because they're moving around? And we see in this, during this 16 months, the way they're putting food on the table is they're raiding these villages and they're taking all their stuff. He's given Achish a point, a part of it, and he says, where'd you go today? And David lies. And he says, I've, I've gone to these different Israelite towns, and Achish is thinking, well, you're definitely going to be with me forever then because they're all going to hate you for what you're doing. Chapter 28, verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. This is an ambiguous reply from David. David says, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Achish replied, very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. Skip over to chapter 29. Chronologically, this follows. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, what about these Hebrews? Achish replies, not this David, who is an officer of Saul, king of Israel, He's already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish and said, Send the man back, that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle, or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could, we, could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of, his, of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul is slain as thousands, and David is tens of thousands. 
So Achish called David and said to him, as surely as the Lord lives, you've been reliable and I'd be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until today, I found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Now turn back, go in peace and do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. What have I done? Asked David, what have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my king, of my Lord, the king? That's another ambiguous statement. Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? Achish answered, I know that you've been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said he must not go up with us into battle. Now get up early along with your master's servants who have come with you and leave in the morning as soon as it is light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So David is caught in a dilemma. His deception has led to this decision he has to make. Achish sees him as one of his own. He's attacking all these Israelite towns. He's being successful. He says, you're going to be with me now. Okay. And David's response is kind of, again, it's, it's ambiguous. He says, you'll see what your servant can do. That is, he's not really saying anything. And he says, I'm going to make you a captain of my bodyguard. And then Achish decides to go and raid the Israelites, maybe because he thinks David's weakened them. We don't know. He says, you're going to come fight with me. And now David's in a tight spot. You and your 600 troops are going to come fight with me against the Israelites. The Israelites are the people of God. Philistines are the enemies of God. So what does David do? Does he fight for the enemies of God against the people of God? If he turns on the Philistines, is there any guarantee that Saul's going to bring them back? No. We've seen David fight against the Philistines. It's actually why he got into the problem in the first place. Saul got jealous of David's uh, abilities in battle and the fact that all these people were giving him accolades for how great a warrior he was. No guarantees that Saul's going to bring him back and he's caught in this tight spot. And so they're marching out in Philistine. There's five major cities and each has their own king. And these other kings are going, why are you bringing those guys with us? They're Hebrews. We don't want them. And Achish says, he's been loyal to me for over a year, not done anything wrong. We don't want him. When he gets into battle, he'll turn on us. What better way to win Saul's favor back? It actually happened back in chapter 14, where you have some Hebrews who are fighting with the Philistines, and they turn on him in battle. We don't want that to happen again. Send him back. Achish fights for David, but ultimately he says to David, you haven't done anything wrong, but you've got to go back. Don't, don't make these guys mad. And so David, again, with this ambiguous response, why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? We don't know who, who's this king. Achish, Saul, God, he doesn't say. But he gets to go home. To me, you see the grace of God there. David's in a tight spot. He's in a dilemma. In a battle, you have to pick a side. And God steps in before David has to choose and sends him home. It's Again, it's the grace of God. I think David's gotten himself into this situation. I don't think these circumstances were thrust upon him. It's decisions that he made, one to move to Gath, two to conduct these raids, three to lie about them. And now we see he's put in a spot where he has to make a decision. And again, God graciously intervenes before he he has to do that, he or uh, his men. I was thinking about that for us. I don't know how you see the decision. I see it as sinful. I think David made a sinful choice in moving to Gath. You may not. Uh, Even if you disagree with me on that, I think there's a couple of things that you can pull out um, before we're done this morning. But let me give you a little background or foundation for why I think it was a sinful choice. I think there's something that we can learn from that as well. Sinful choice for several reasons. You see them up here bullet pointed. There's our key verse. One of the David thought to himself, one of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. 
The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching anywhere for me, and I'll slip out of his hand. We show the next one. So I think it's a sinful choice. One, because uh, the last clear word David had on where to live was to stay in Judah, all the way back in chapter 23. He had moved to, to Moab. No, it's chapter 21. Excuse me. He'd moved to Moab, another foreign country, which made sense. If I live in a foreign country, then the king of Israel can't get me. And he was living there, and he got a word through the prophet Gad. Come back to Israel. Live in the land of Judah, is what the word said. And so he moves back, and there's no nothing intervening between chapter 21 and chapter 27 where God spoke to him about where he should live. The last clear word he had on where to live was to stay in Judah, and now he's decided to move to Gath. And there's no indication... That David prayed or that he was led by the Lord. You can assume that he was, but it's not what it says. There's no indication that David prayed or was led by the Lord. He says, yeah, he thought to himself, and then he made this decision. Again, in chapter 23, he was wondering about going somewhere, and it says explicitly two times he inquired of the Lord, should I go to this place, Keilah? So it's something that he'd done before, and for whatever reason, he doesn't do it. This time, again, I think that I think it's a bad decision. I think it's a disobedient decision because he doesn't ask the Lord and he's disobeyed the last clear word he's had on where to live. If you're going to do something different from what God has told you to do, then you need to have God say that's okay. God leads you in that direction. There's no indication that that was the case for David. We also see that his motivation to me appears to be fearful. What does he say? I will be one of these days. I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. That sounds like fear to me. So look at the track record. David, five years, seven years, ten years, has been running from Saul, and God's protected him the whole time. Saul has, or God has just worked this miracle. Somehow David and Abishai work through 3,000 men at night, and none of them wake up, takes the spear and the water jug, and they get out alive. Nobody's stirring at all. Like on the heels of that kind of a display of God's protective power, it's interesting to me that David starts to go, what's, I don't know about this. I feel, it's almost like it, our words, he's afraid his luck's going to run out. It's just a matter of time. Saul is relentless in his pursuit of him, absolutely. But it's interesting that right after this display of God's protective power and God's deliverance, David is going, I don't know how much longer this can last. I've got to move. I've got to go somewhere else. It doesn't feel like faith to me. I don't know if that does to you or not. It seems like he's saying Saul's going to get me, which is equivalent to God is not going to protect me. To me, those are synonymous. Saul is going to destroy me, which is another way of saying God's not going to protect me from Saul any longer. That doesn't sound like faith to me. That sounds a whole lot like fear. So I think David's making a decision out of fear. I think he's making a decision without seeking the Lord. I think he's making a decision that goes against the last clear word that he's heard. So that, for me, is why I would say it's a sinful decision. And that decision leads to deception. Because he's under the authority of Gath, he has to explain how he's getting all of this stuff. He's got to feed his people, and he's feeding his people by raiding, and he's got to explain what he's doing. Now, it is true that those raids are righteous. He's not, God never condemns him for what he does. There's no guilt associated with what David actually does. It's hard for us. 
He's not sinning because he's killing people. He's sinning because he's lying about who he's killing. But in this case, all of those people fall under this, under the judgment of God. David doesn't incur any guilt from the Lord, but he is being deceitful. And that deceit then leads to this dilemma that he has. When Achish conscripts him and says, you're going to fight with me and your men are going to fight with me. And again, thankfully, God graciously intervenes before David has to make a decision. But I think everything starts with that initial chapter 27, verse 1, when David, not from a place of prayer, not from a place of faith, I would say from a place of disobedience, chooses to move to Gath. We can understand why he does it, but just because we can understand it doesn't make it right. So for us, we want to keep in step with the Spirit. I think David did as well. Galatians 5.25 talks about people of the Spirit. That's If you're a, a follower of Jesus, then that's you. We want to keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says. Those of you who live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. And that can be difficult at times. Again, think about David. It's been 10 or 12 years since Samuel anointed him and said, you're going to be the king. And in those intervening 10 or 12 years, there hadn't been a whole lot to write home about. He killed Goliath, and that was great. And since then, it's kind of gone downhill for him rapidly. And particularly the last 8 to 10 years have been very difficult as he literally is running for his life with this group of 600 men and their families trying to escape Saul. And he's never done anything wrong. All he's ever done has been loyal to Saul and obedient to the Lord. And it doesn't seem to be paying off in a, in a way. And, it's, and it can be difficult in that environment to continue to be faithful to the word God has spoken to you. And you may find yourself there. And I would say you will find yourself there. And maybe you find yourself there now this morning. Where it's become difficult for you to say, yes, I'm keeping in step with the spirit. Would you say that? When it comes to your business, would you say that when it comes to your family? Would you say that when it comes to your personal habits? Would you say, yes, I'm keeping in step with the Spirit? Or is that becoming a bit tricky for you? Do you find yourself in chapter 27, verse 1, going, I don't, I don't know anymore? A few things from David that you can see. One, David thought to himself, don't make a decision in a vacuum. You need to seek input. I would strongly encourage you, seek input. Don't make decisions in a vacuum. You ultimately are responsible for your heart. Your obedience is personal. But that doesn't mean that that you need to make decisions completely cut off from other people. No indication that David prayed at all. None. I would say he didn't. He thought to himself he didn't pray. He didn't ask the Lord. He didn't inquire of the Lord. Now, he had 600 people. They were not the cream of the crop. They were indebted. They were distressed. And they were disgruntled. And so he may have said, I don't want to talk to any of those guys. And I get it. He did have Abigail, second wife. She was intelligent. That's how she was described, someone with good judgment. Marriage didn't really work the way it does for us. God, men would not consult with their wives. They would just make decisions. So probably never would have crossed David's mind to consult Abigail. He absolutely could have prayed. He's done it before. We saw it. Chapter 23, God, should I go to this place? It's an exact, it's a very close parallel. It's not exact. God, should I go to this place? He's done that before. He doesn't do that this time. He just thinks to himself. What about you? Are there, are, 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 do you seek input from the Lord and from other people? If you're a Christian, God speaks to you. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. If you're a Christian, then you're one of the sheep of Jesus, and he's speaking to you. 
He wants to lead you. That's what shepherds do. I am shocked at the number of Christians who choose to fly blind through life. It makes no sense to me at all. Why would you? You don't have to. Why would you choose to bang into a wall when you have access to a God who can tell you it's coming? It doesn't make sense to me. Do you ask him? Well, he's busy. I don't even know what that means. He's busy? He's got bigger things to take care of. Well, I, don't even, I don't know what any of that stuff means. Bigger things to take care of. He wants to know. And he wants to lead you. He wants to guide you. So ask him. If you want to be led by the Spirit, you need to hear the voice of God. That's how he's going to lead you. I'd also say seek input from others. If you're married, you and your spouse obviously want to be on the same page. I think it's great to have input from somebody who has a different last name. There's a bit more objectivity that way. If you can find someone, someone else. Someone, I would say, it's great to have someone who kind of goes along with you in life. Who knows you really well. They may not know the details of the decision. You want to start a business, they don't know anything about that. But if they know you really well, they'll know what to ask. They'll know your motivations. They'll know the places where you maybe would tend to um, be tempted. And they can ask you about those things. I think it's also great to get input from experts, for sure. But if I have to choose, I'm saying God first and people who love him and love me second. And then I'll do experts third. Are you seeking input? Don't make your decision in a vacuum. Second thing, trust God. Don't be driven by fear. Fear can often masquerade as wisdom, and that's what I think we see here. God absolutely leads us through paths of wisdom, 100%. Don't hear me saying otherwise. But fear can often sound like wisdom. Wisdom and revelation are two different things, and God speaks through both. Wisdom is is holy common sense. It's knowledge and experience and good judgment all wrapped up into one. It's how God usually works. It's best practices. It's handed down, and it's wonderful, and that's how God oftentimes leads us. I did a small group one time, and it was because the title of the book caught me. It was like the greatest question ever. That was the title of the book. And I was thinking, all right, what's the greatest question ever? And according to the author, the greatest question ever is, is it the wise thing? I would disagree. That's not the greatest question ever. But it's a really good question. It's a really good question. And oftentimes, the wise thing is the right thing. The wise thing is the obedient thing. David, in this case, is using wisdom. Saul has 3,000 troops. I've got 600. Saul is relentless in his pursuit of me. There's a limited number of hiding places. I've got 2,000 people I've got to take care of, and I don't know. I'm, I'm running out of resources. All of that is wisdom. I would be safer in a foreign country than in the country where Saul's the king. Yes, check all of those boxes, 100%. Wisdom says, move. But Revelation said, stay. Through the prophet Gad, go to the land of Judah. That doesn't make any sense. Revelation rarely does. It's often unconventional. It's new information. It's the will or the heart or the mind of God about a specific situation, whatever you want to say, will, heart, mind of God. Wisdom is generally true for everyone. Revelation is specifically true for you in your situation. David had a word from God. Go to the land of Judah. And until God said something else, you stay in the land of Judah. 
God often leads through wisdom, but revelation always, always trumps wisdom. If you have a word of revelation, that trumps wisdom all day long, all day long. And for me, when, I, when I'm reading this, I hear fear masquerading as wisdom. That's what I hear in David. At some point, Saul's going to get me. And once, he, once that fear takes root, Saul's going to get me, then he does what we all do, and you start justifying your decision. Well, this just makes a lot of sense. Like, we can look at this on paper. He's got more people than me. He's not trustworthy. So even though he said he's not going to come after me, I know he's going to come after me. I've got all of these people I've got to take care of. It'd be safer in a foreign country. Again, like that, yes. Put it in the spreadsheet. Crank out the answer. Move to Gath. Except God's already spoken to him. So you can't do that. For you, are you prone to be motivated by fear? Fear masquerading as wisdom. Again, that's our desire to justify ourselves. It's our desire to rationalize what we're doing. None of us want to say we're making decisions out of fear. So we dress them up real nice. Whether that's with our family, it's with our money. Sometimes then wisdom takes on the guise of stewardship. Whatever those, that's why it's so helpful to have someone not named you who will ask you questions. Hey, I hear what you're saying. Can you tell me why we're doing this again? And you tell them and they say, that's great. Can you tell me again? Why, why this? Why now? Why this way? Nobody, David didn't seek input. There was nobody to challenge him on why he was doing what he was doing. Don't make a decision in a vacuum. Don't be driven by fear. Last one. Rest. Don't decide when you're tired. This is me speculating. I think it's legit if you read David in Psalms and you kind of think about his situation, but it is. It's not explicitly stated. I think David's worn out. I think he's been running for a long time. He's been taking care of a lot of people for a long time. And I think he's just emotionally drained, spiritually drained. I don't think he's physically tired. I think he's just worn out. And when we're tired, we don't make great decisions. Think about the last great decision you made when you were worn out. There's not one. We're terrible when we're tired. That's why they tell doctors to go home and truck drivers to go home and pilots to go home. We're not great. For many of us, that's step one, is recognizing we're not great when we're tired. A married couple once told me, we don't make any big decisions after 8 p.m. Because we're both done. It's not going to be good. We're either going to fight and we're not going to fix it or we're going to make a bad decision. No big decisions after 8. And that's not just being physically tired. Also, when we get just worn out internally, when you're tired, how many of you, when you're tired, you're like, you know what? I'm really looking for a challenge. When you're tired, you say, you know what? I want to do the next hard thing. That's not what we do. We sit down with a bowl of ice cream and we turn on the TV. That's what we do. We're seeking comfort. What's comfortable? Move to Gath. You'll be safe there. It's a walled city in a country that Saul is not the king of. That will be better. That's what we do when we're tired. We don't necessarily at that point, we're not necessarily concerned about obedience and faithfulness. We're concerned about getting a break and something being easy for a day. That's what we want. Do you know yourself well enough to recognize when you're tired? If you live in Marietta and you wonder if you're tired, the answer is yes, you are. You're tired. That's where we live. And it's 
how we live. Many of you have young children, and they wear you out. They will continue to do so. That doesn't, it, it's not, tomorrow's not going to make it better. You're still going to have to make lunch, and you're still going to have to make breakfast, and you still got to change diapers, and you still got to make sure they use toothpaste when they brush their teeth, and all of those things. And they get older, and you don't have to make sure of that anymore, but then they call you and say, I totaled the car. And so you have to deal with those things. You're tired either way. And you're going to be tired. Many of you, you have a job, and it's constantly saying, how about just a little bit more? Just a little bit more. Just just today, give me a little bit more. Your job's never finished. It's not going to be. You think when I finish this project, it's going to be, I'm going to get a break. When was the last time that happened? It doesn't because there's another project. If you live here, then most likely you're tired. And when you're tired, you don't make great decisions. The pace of decisions that come to us, if you don't work rest into your regular rhythm, daily, weekly, monthly, annually, you're not going to be ready. You're not going to be ready when you hit the fork in the road because you're already going to be wiped out and there's going to be a deadline. You've got to decide by X. And you're not going to be able to get away for a weekend or a week or whatever you need to rest and really spend time listening and, and discerning. You don't have that kind of, you don't have the luxury to take that kind of time. Rest needs to be, I would strongly encourage you, needs to be a part of your regular rhythm. I'm not talking about the number of hours that you sleep in a night. That's important. That's actually, that's a little bit easier. What I'm talking about is intentional time where you're not productive, where you're allowing the Lord to renew you internally, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. I don't have time for that. That's the point. If you had time for it, you probably wouldn't need it. You have to make time for it. You have to fight for it. And it's part of God's created order. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Before Adam and Eve do anything, they're created on the sixth day. The seventh day is a day of nothing. They can't be tired. They hadn't done anything. They haven't even been alive. Their first day, they do nothing, and then they work. For you and for me, how important rest is. And you discerning and learning, what does that look like for you? What renews you? What restores you? What does it look like for you to be intentionally non-productive as an expression of faith? God, I trust that when I'm not working, you still are. And I trust that when I'm not working, everything's not going to fall apart. You've got it. For some of you, the most uh, outrageous step of faith you can take is to not check your email and to trust that it's all going to be okay until tomorrow when you can. If you're not cultivating a, a rhythm of rest, you're, then you're tired. You're not going to make great decisions. You may get lucky, but you're not going to make great ones. And it goes all the way down to, I know it starts in high school. It may even be in middle school. We see it, I see it in high school students for sure. Running, running, running. It's nothing like when I was in high school. The pressure, the amount of things they have to do, the expectations from teachers and coaches and everywhere. Help your kids learn how to rest. It's a great gift that you can give them. I want to take a minute and pray. Pick one of these three. Just pick one. When you think about keeping in step with the Spirit, what trips you up the most? You only can take one. You have a hard time seeking input. That's the one for me. I think I'm the smartest guy in every room. So I think to myself, I rarely say, what does somebody else think? So what I've started to do over the last several years, 
And this is just practical because I know that about myself. So now I don't decide until I ask. I'll get 75%. I know if I get to 100%, it's going to be really hard for me to change my mind. So I get to 75% or 60% and make sure I'm asking someone, not just praying, but asking other people, what do you think? It's a discipline for me because that's, that's the hardest one for me is to get input from others on decisions. And so I know that and I've had to kind of work around that sin issue in my own life. Is that one difficult for you, either seeking input from others or from the Lord? You have a hard time thinking God wants to direct you. Do you have a hard time discerning his voice? What is, is it trust? Maybe not in every area, but do you have a hard time trusting? Do you tend to maybe be driven by fear a little bit when it comes to your decisions, at least in one area of life? What about rest? Are you too worn out internally to really make a good decision? Are you like David? You're like, man, it would be so much easier if. Fill in the blank. Sometimes the easy thing, sometimes that's, that's okay. But it's not okay because it's the easy thing. It's okay because it's the faithful thing. Just like with wisdom. Sometimes wisdom is the right thing. But it's the right thing because it's the faithful thing, not because it's the wise thing. Which one of those do you struggle with the most? Let's take a minute and pray. God, I think the the desire for me, I I know and I believe for the men and women in this room, is we want to keep in step with the Spirit. We want to keep in step with your Spirit. None of us want to run into walls that we don't have to run into. None of us want to make wrong turns that we don't have to. We want to keep in step with you. We want to recognize, Jesus, that you're a good shepherd, that you lead us beside, you lead us to green pastures and beside quiet waters and in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So we want, we want to keep in step with you. We love green pastures and quiet waters. So Holy Spirit, would you come now and would you search our hearts? Maybe just ask him that. Holy Spirit, search my heart this morning. Show me. Why is that difficult for me? Whatever the one that you identified as your biggest struggle, an issue, it's a sin issue for me, it's arrogance. Ask him. God, why is this a tough one? Why is it hard for me to trust you? Why do I never think of praying? God, why is it hard for me to stop? And then, as Bo sings, I don't want you to sing, you stay in your seat. As he sings, begin to work that with the Lord. Confess, God, yes, I recognize this. God, I want to grow in this area. I want to trust you. I want to open myself up for you to bring healing if that's necessary, forgiveness as that's necessary. Like for me, it's very practical, a new way of doing things. God, I need an idea. I need a new way of doing things because my old way is not working. It's not keeping me in step with your spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to the men and women in this room? In this next couple of minutes. I think the, our hearts, we desire to walk in the Spirit. Sometimes we, we execute poorly. Would you speak to us there? We pray in Jesus' name.